Well, I, I have to say, whenever I say this, you know, get done with the series, did the defiance, and that was hard to leave, and then these tough questions, and that was hard to leave, and now we're starting a series called A New Way to Pray. And it's uh, first part of it is Father God. And I'm really excited about what I believe we can learn about prayer and what Jesus modeled. Let's pray. Father, I invite you to be the one who speaks your word here through me as a servant. May the word of God in the Bible become fresh and new in our own lives as we hear your heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A good friend of mine tells a story. I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, whether it's really true or not. It's about Mike Ditka and a guy named Refrigerator Perry, a member of the Chicago Bears. And, and I, I kind of was aware of that group. I was in the uh, Chicago area during that time. In fact, um, at that time, the university seminary I went to, they would often come there and help with the football team. They would also do, once in a while, they'd had actually some practices there and got to know, you know, Mike Ditka through some others. And he's just a gruff kind of guy, and Refrigerator Perry is not what I would call your normal saint. Anyway, um, the chaplain of the 85 Super Bowl Super Shuffling Bears was at a chapel where Refrigerator Perry was asked to say the Lord's Prayer. And Coach Ditka whispered to the chaplain, I bet you 20 bucks that Fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And all of a sudden, Perry begins to pray. And Dick is a little bit, whoa. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And goes on, and Dick is kind of impressed, and he shakes the hand of the chaplain afterwards, gives him the $20, and says, here's the 20 I can't believe that Perry knew the Lord's Prayer. You know. <laughs> Now, before you get real worried about this new way to pray, I want to just share with you that's not what we're about. We're not about going somewhere foreign, something different, something that's not really at the heart and tent of what prayer is about, whether it's the practice or the content of what we talk about in prayer. We're not talking about something heretically different in any way. In fact, Jesus teaches us throughout Scripture that he takes things that the content gets wrote or the things of practices that are done that lose their significance and he renews them. He had a habit of taking old, familiar, and often mistruthed, misused uh, truths and practices and he made them new. You see it on the Sermon on the Mount right away. You see in some of his teaching, that's what grabbed hold of people. He would say to them, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not commit murder. Well, that comes right out of the Bible. That's one of the ten laws that they knew well. And then he says, but I tell you, and he's saying it in the sense of, I tell you in a fresh and a new way, that anyone who's angry with his brother is subject to judgment. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, right out of the Bible, right out of the Old Testament, the laws that they knew. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus was always making things new. He would get under the veneer of the law in order to get to the spirit of the law. He would peel back our self-serving rules and practices so that he could get to a place where he could mess with our hearts. And my prayer is that as we go through the Lord's Prayer, that we hear it in a new way, in a fresh way, and that the Spirit of God begins to mess with your heart. 
that you're different because of what you hear through the word of God. He did the same thing, and when you think about it, um, because he's so concerned about the heart, he would always, he knew this well, the Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. He would say, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. If you want to look at Jesus, he's so concerned about the heart and our intent with regard to our heart. And so he, he takes us to a place with regard to the command of love. And it's just before his crucifixion. And he's talking to his disciples. And he says, a new commandment I give you. And I think they're probably pretty excited about this. They've been seeing all the things God's, Jesus has been doing. And now they're at a place and Jesus is kind of coming before them. And he's kind of saying, I'm going to give you something new. And in their hearts, I think they're going, wow, maybe this is the command that allows us to walk and do the things that Jesus does. Maybe this is the command that will transform our life and transform the world they're living in. What is this new command? And he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. And I have a sense that when he says love one another, the disciples are going, but wait a second, that's as old as anything I've ever read in the book or heard spoken. But Jesus continues and redefines this, helps us get to the heart, and he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, you have to understand in those days, this was an important thing because followers of a rabbi would be given a distinctive mark. It would be the signature thing that you could tell this was a follower of this rabbi. And so they would either through the clothes they would wear or the way they would wear their clothes or the way they would wear their hair or the way they wouldn't wear hair would be distinguished as one of the persons who would follow a certain rabbi. And they haven't had one of these kind of marks. These followers of Jesus have only been known by the fact that they've been with him if they've been seen with him. They don't have a special distinguishing mark. So in some ways, this is a pretty cool thing. Jesus is finally saying, I'm going to give you this mark. And so he says, we're going to do something new and different. And here's the mark that will set you apart from everything else and everyone else. It will be not your clothes or your hairstyle or a bumper sticker or even a cross around your neck. It will be love. Authentic, genuine, real love from the heart that loves like I loved and looks like the kind of way I loved. That's what's going to distinguish you from everyone. And this is my new command. See, Jesus loves to get to the heart, to the intent. And so when it comes to prayer, I don't think we realize this because we don't have the backdrop of this, but Jesus, in a very similar way, we read in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, that one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. You may not realize this, but prayer for Jesus, this conversation of being really prayer, in many ways is, is, is a deliberate intent, kind of being in the presence of God, where you listen and allow him to speak, and then you share also your requests. And so they're looking at Jesus, who has been doing this, because this is not a rare occurrence for Jesus. Luke wants you to know this. It's not till chapter 11, verse 1, that you read this, that a person comes to him and says, I want to learn a little bit more about this. They're observing Jesus' life. And so if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 42, Luke chapter 5, verse 16... Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. 
you see this practice of Jesus being in conversation, getting away to a solitary place where you could hear the Lord and you can be in conversation with him. And that kind of conversation regulates everything he does. And people, when you watch a person's habit, you begin to start thinking That's, that practice they're doing seems to be making a difference in their life. And these disciples are kind of watching and they've kind of seen, you know, John had disciples and taught him to pray. They're kind of waiting. They're finally, after it's kind of a thirst is there, Jesus, how about us? What about teaching us to pray? I hope that's where your heart is today. I hope there's something in your heart that's saying, I want to learn a bit more, God, about what it really means to be in conversation, to really pray with you. Or maybe prayer can begin to change my life. And Jesus takes something familiar and routine and renews it. You see, what we don't understand in the context of this, and this is what some scholars will really believe, and that is there was a prayer called the 18 benedictions. Now Jews will talk about the 19 benedictions. But in that time, what happened back in the time when the temple was destroyed, some 600 years before Christ, and that temple was destroyed, and all the Jews were deported to Babylon and dispersed throughout the countryside, what was, what was the regulating thing of their life was the temple where the presence of God was, and that people would come and they would offer these sacrifices, be offered daily, but they would have these times where they would come. And it was this which kind of was the thing that created the culture of the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the holiness of God. And when they were removed from their city and from their temple... There were some people called Pharisees. We think of them as being bad people. The word means pure ones. They'd be kind of like the Puritans. They came along at a time when the Jewish faith was a mess and it was filthy. It wasn't, um, it had lost the intent of what the, the Father wanted. And they began to develop synagogues. And in these synagogues, they would gather people together because they couldn't gather at the temple. And in the synagogue, they would begin to pray. And they would, they would regulate these 18 benedictions with, with three times of prayer that would re- be regulated with the time the sacrifices would have been done in the temple. And there were rabbis throughout history, when people would say, teach me to pray, they would go to those prayers, most likely, because those were the, the foundational prayers that, was, that came out of the deportation of these Jews, where they would begin to regulate their life, and their compass of their life would be directed again to the true north of God's truth and love. And so they come to him and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And in the contents of these 18 benedictions, there's one point. There, there, there's, the beginning part is called the praise or acknowledgement. The middle blessings compose the request, both individual and communal. And then at the end, there's, a, there's these final three blessings kind of known as the gratitude. And in that prayer, there are some things that are said. At one point, there's in the first benedictions of praise or acknowledgement, there's what's called the sanctification or hallowedness of the name. Sound familiar in the Lord's Prayer? There's a point in the request where you see in the request that asks for the forgiveness of all our sins and praises God for being a God of forgiveness. So they're saying, teach us to pray. And, and, and they may have been expecting Jesus to make some comments on the 18 benedictions. But see, what you don't realize also in that day, what had grown up at that time, was these 18 benedictions, as time went on, also had these, these things that they would place around it. Not only what to pray, but how to pray. There were, there were rules when you would pray the 18 benedictions called concentration. And the whole idea is as you prayed this, you had to pray with the intent. You wouldn't get into a place where you were saying it in a rote fashion. Anybody ever done that before? When you know what happens when you went through it in a rote way, what the, the rule was? You had to start all over again. And these were long prayers. 
there were rules to regard, with regard to interruptions, if you were interrupted in the time of praying these 18 benedictions. There were rules with regard to volume, how, lo- how loud you should pray and how silent you should pray. And they based them actually in the guidelines of silent prayer came from Hannah when she was in, 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 in that time of prayer when she wanted a child for God and as she was praying, it said that she prayed so that no one could hear her, yet her lips were moving. So they would say, the volume is this, therefore when you pray, one's voice should be audible to oneself but not loud enough for others to hear. There's these rules about standing. The worshiper recites the prayer while standing with their feet firmly planted together. Often prayer in the Old Testament was with hands raised, but they had rules about standing like this because when Ezekiel, they believed the angel came, he he stood as if he had one leg. It's really funny, the Talmud, which is a commentary on this, which is prior to Jesus' time, the Talmud states that if you're sitting on an animal or sitting in a boat, you don't have to stand. Isn't that nice? You could get hurt. I mean, I'm not too good on a donkey. Um, When you pray, you pray, you face Jerusalem. The Amida, which is what these 18 benedictions are called in the Jewish faith, faces Jerusalem like the patriarch who proclaimed, and this place is the gateway to heaven where prayers may ascend. And then they had this thing, too, that you would take three steps when you begin to pray these benedictions. You would take three steps backwards. The whole purpose of this was that you would acknowledge the fact that you need to withdraw from the world and all the concentration, all the things that you focus on, all the ways you've been tainted. You would just step back, and then you would take three steps backward as you were presenting yourself before the King of Kings. And then there were rules on bowing. Four different times in that prayer, you would prostrate yourself in a bow before the Lord, the King of Kings. And I am so glad, as I was going through this, to understand that the kind of praying prescribed by the Pharisees and the rabbis of that day, when Jesus is asked, teaches to pray, he goes, let me show you this little prayer. Because Jesus is really concerned about our heart conversing with God's heart. And yet he has some important content in this prayer. That really will change your life. I've, I've thought at times of should this... I've been praying this prayer a lot more in my life because I believe it has the ability to transform me. And when I'm transformed, it has the ability to transform others. It has the ability to transform me so I can transform, hopefully, people in my family. It might transform the place I work. I work here, by the way, but the, the place I work. It might transform our culture as a church. Because the things in here, the values, the things he talks about are so essential and foundational. So let's stand together because Jesus loves to make the prayer so simple. He has this rule. Jesus goes by the KISS principle. You remember that one? Keep it simple. We don't use stupid in our home because you don't call people stupid. Keep it simple, silly. Um, But I want us to say the Lord's Prayer together. And not to do it in a row, but just as best you can, say it before the Lord because we're going to explain some of this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. 
I'm just going to let you know that when you do this in a Catholic setting and they won't have the words on the board, do not use it forever and forever because they don't say that. I did that once a couple different times. In fact, they do it almost every time I'm in a Catholic you know, wedding or funeral or whenever it's used. And they can tell because I'm the only one saying it and they go, there's a Protestant in our lives. Anyway. <clears throat> Jesus begins calling us to some simple awareness about God. And there are three things I think he wants us to note about God. Now, there's some of you, again, I always kid the engineer type or the ones who like to take notes, and so I'm loved that you take notes, so I'm going to give you a little roadmap to where we're heading so you can just grab this quick. And that is we're just going to talk about these three things, which I think are essential in this prayer. God is our Father. God our Father fills the heavens. And God our Father is worthy of honor. If I was to begin the prayer, I would pray it this way. Our Father filling the heavens, may you be worthy of honor. Our Father filling the heavens, may you be worthy of honor. And I think it's really interesting that Jesus would start out this way. He wants to begin the prayer by not going into a bunch of rules about how you do it, sitting up and down, standing this and that. And again, all those things are not bad. It is important. Postures in prayer. I would encourage you not... To, any of the stuff I said about how to pray, don't take that lightly because the things we can posture ourselves can actually form our heart. But when they become rules that become rote, they're no good. And so Jesus basically wants to kind of strip it all away. Tell us a new way to pray. And that way to pray is to say, guess what? Your Father, our Father, our our dad's in heaven. Isn't that good to know? When we speak to someone, we, try to use, we use a name to call that person in order to distinguish them from someone else. And by calling to someone with a specific name, we are indicating that we wish to speak to that particular person. That name also calls attention to our standing in relation to the one addressed. It defines our relationship. So that you have this idea, so then if I was to talk to Joel, who was our worship leader, and I said, Joel, I'd get his attention versus the one worship singer, Kevin Lakin, who's singing, it distinguishes, he knows who I'm talking to. There are all kinds of ways that names just define who our relationship is with someone. And we have different kinds of things about names too. Names are ways that can be done in such a way they can actually remove a person, but they can also call you into a closer intimacy with a person. My father was at that seminary university I went to. My father was the president, and he was known by a lot of people that would call him president. Now, president is a relationship that is a little more hierarchical, a little more distant, a little more respect, and so he would be called by that by some people. He was also a pastor before that, so people who would, you know, knew him then would sometimes call him Pastor Ken. And then there were people who knew him a little more close. They'd call him Ken. I'd say, Ken, what are you doing? And then there was a guy. There was this guy who, I mean, I can't believe the arrogance of this guy. The confidence of this guy. He would actually, with a mansion where the executive offices were, this guy would walk in and here would be the receptionist and he would just kind of walk by the receptionist and say, hi, how you doing? And then go over here to where the whole role of executive offices were, where the administrative assistant to the president was, seated right across from the president's office. This guy would walk in and he would say hi and he'd walk right in and he'd say, hi, dad. I love that. It was so cool. In the word, our father, is the word Abba, this idea of dad. It's the sense of closeness. It's the sense that you can walk into the presence of God because what Jesus has done for you by removing your sins. And you can say in your prayer right from the very beginning, Jesus doesn't say a lot of things about rules, regulations, none of that. He just says, calm dad. Isn't that a wonderful truth? 
There's so much in this whole first word. I Seriously, you could spend many messages on this. The word our is important. When we say our father, it says something about our relationship to one another. We're children. We're brothers and sisters. If he's really our father, how do we treat one another? How do you treat the people in your family? How do you treat the people in your church? Do you go around speaking in, in, in bad of them, suspecting the worst of them? When there's a conflict, do you go to one of the other brothers and sisters and talk about it, or do you go to that person out of love and saying, you know what, I've been offended, or I have this situation that I don't quite understand? What do you do? Well, I shouldn't get into this. I didn't even talk about this first service. But anyway, um, our father. It's another great thing. I, I was reading in William Willimon and Stanley Allervas in their book, they, they make some statements about our Father. They say, we say our, because of the astounding recognition that this God, the one who created the universe and flung the planets into their courses, the great God of heaven and earth, has willed to become our God. Before we reach out to God, God reached out to us and claimed us. Promised to be our God. Promised to make us God's people. Thus, not only not because of who we are or what we have done, but rather because of what God and Jesus Christ have done. Jesus teaches us this incredible privilege. You get to say, our Father. It's our Dad. I don't know if you're like me or not, but um, I really need to hear that. I need to understand that. I tell people soften when I counsel. I said, you know, here's a good thing to do. When you think about God, put yourself in a father, son, or daughter relationship. How with your child, if you were going through this as a really good and loving and perfectly um, righteous, patient kind of parent, how would you deal with that? And then I just say, now think of that in the way that God might deal with you. For instance, when you blow it, what do you think of? Is this God this remote, distant judge who can't wait to make you pay? See, Jesus is trying to reform the way we think about him. You see, how you envision, often even your father, gets ble- kind of bleeds into how you envision the Father in heaven. And if he's distant and he's kind of this kind of, and he's the kind of guy kind of controlling your life, you're going to go, I don't want that dad in my life. You might be coming here and beginning to really think about, do I want to to walk with God and to know Jesus and to live in this way? But I really don't know because this, everything I know about God is he just wants to take control of me. No. He wants you to be all that you can be. He's a good dad. He's a perfect father. And when you blow it, you know, you do what a good dad does. I was, I was at the uh, prayer breakfast in the Medina Ballroom this last Thursday, early in the morning for National Prayer Breakfast Day. And there was a speaker, her name was Jean. And she was sharing about her life. And she said, you know, my grandmother had such an influence in my life. So those of you grandparents, listen up. My grandmother made so much difference in my life. 80% of all I'm doing today is because of my grandmother. When I'd ask her about things, she'd look at me and go, sure, honey, you can do that. And then she said, you know, my my grandfather had an influence in my life. He was a farmer. And he raised sheep. And in the barn, 
one day I went in and, and there was a new lamb that was born and, and my grandfather was with me and he said, you know, just stay out of that pen right now, honey. And he went to go do something and she snuck into the pen and she was so enamored with this lamb. She didn't listen to the instructions and so she's in there. She's not in there but in a few seconds and, and this thing rears up and the mother you comes and headbutts her over. And she said, before the thing attacked me and hit me again, I felt his hand grab me and pull me out of the pen. He was my grandfather. And then she said this, Jean said this, and I love this. This makes me want to cry. This is going to say, my grandfather was a good man. He didn't shame me or berate me or degrade me. He merely looked at me in the eyes with love and said, well, honey, I think you've learned your lesson. That's your father in heaven. You might be experiencing some consequences of decisions you've made, and he's not berating you. He's not shaming you. He's going, I hope, you know, I love you. If you don't know it, hear this and this right now. God loves you. He's your father. When you take a risk, a lot of times you go, oh, I don't know. I'm going to take this. And I just go, if you're a parent, a grandparent to a child, and you see a child stepping out, edging out, taking a risk for good. Aren't you going to just cheer them on and want them to succeed? Well, God's that way to you. When you're seeking God's will. Oh, if I could only discover and find it. Baloney. It's not so much up to you. You just need to be who Jesus created you to be. Continue faithfully walking it, and he will reveal it to you. Because if you had a perfect dad and a perfect parent and they saw you wanting to do what was what pleasurable to them, do you think they're going to sit there and go, man, I hope they find it out? It's silly. This prayer, this very word, our Father, can revolutionize this church, this community, your life, your family. If you quit trying to change people, but let God through that prayer change you. There's a reason why Jesus was revealed as a son of God. Deep theology in this. Because he wanted to see, for us to see, a perfect relationship of a parent and a child. Always look to that. Pray that when you get up in the morning. Let it guide your day. Second, he's our father who fills the heavens. Now, there's variations in phrasing between Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer and Matthew's version. There's two accounts, but they're not of great significance. But I do think God has reasons why he does that. Matthew literally adds to Luke's just father, hallowed be thy name. We know the Matthew prayer, our father, which we always say who art in heaven. The little addition in Matthew is significant because For me, I every day forget. And throughout the day, I lose my course. And I fail to live in this awareness that my dad fills the heavens. No one, no thing, no event, no relationship, nothing is bigger than my father who is on the throne. His eye is upon me. His hand will guide me. His love is for me. Anybody ever get overwhelmed when you start a day or at some point during the day, you just go, whoa, and then you get afraid. Fear is what fear, Satan loves us to move into fear because when we move into fear, we become reactive. The worst parts of us come out. 
And so what you see is, 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 you know, if you've ever been in that place, what's so wonderful about praying is prayer. Our Father who fills the heavens is this acknowledgement of God. I love in, in, in one of the Psalms, I can't, I, I didn't write it down, but in Luke 11 or 13, and, and anybody who ever feels this way, I love this. It says, in the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, David says, flee like a bird to your mountain, David. Get afraid. You're overwhelmed. Because if you look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against you to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. And then David goes, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? When everything around me is shaking and crumbling and I'm moving to fear, what do I do? I love his words next. His words are this. Don't forget, Kevin, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Your dad fills the heavens. You know what Satan wants to do is get you out of a place of peace. He wants to rob you of your joy. Those are the very things that impact the people around you. How many of you think are being impacted in positive ways by your anxiety and your fear and your depression? Whatever. God calls you to regulate your life. He says, our Father who fills the heavens. It's kind of sad in some ways because your dad, who is both, who is completely sovereign over all, who sees all and observes all is what the psalm says, and he's aware of everything, yet at the same time he cares for you. He's on the throne. He's intimately involved. The problem with this translation sometimes when we read the, our Father who art in heaven, the plural in the Greek, it's a, it's a Greek plural word. It's heavens. And a good Jew understood there were levels of heaven or they had first heavens, which would be the air you breathe. And then they had the atmosphere. And then they had the higher heavens and the sky. And so you lose a little bit when you just say heaven in our world today. Unfortunately, the old standard formulation, our father who art in heaven has come to mean our father who's far away. But the idea of the pearl heavens gives the fullness and richness of this idea that God is as far out there as imaginable. He's that incredibly sovereign and great, and yet as close as the very air we breathe. Our Father fills the heavens. He's up as high as the heavens, yet right down where we live in the atmosphere around our heads, the very air we breathe. Our Father could be translated this way, who is right here, right now. God is that close. You're never alone. And this God, who is our Father, who fills the heaven, also is worthy of honor. Jesus prays, teaching us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I think it's really interesting we don't understand the word hallowed in our language today. That's a 1,500-year word that was used in the King James time, and those kind of words sometimes don't mean the same today. One commentator writes, In the biblical world, names are not ever, never just names. They partake of the reality that they refer to. And the Jewish reverence for the name of God was so great that especially devout Jews might even avoid pronouncing it. So that even today, if you read some very devout Jews, when they write the word God, they write G-D. They don't put the vowels in. So back historically, when you look for the name of God in Jewish writings, it's the word, it's the letters basically which we transliterate Y-H-W-H with no real understanding of the vowels. So we put vowels in there of an A and an E, so it's Yahweh. That's how much regard they had for the name of God. They wouldn't even mention that he was so worthy of honor. 
And we think of hallowed, we think of things like um, hallowed or holy ground, or we think of Halloween and ghosts, right? We just don't get that concept. A better idea to translate this little phrase or to understand the significance behind this word is to say something like this. May your name be deeply respected. Let your name be treasured and loved more than any other, held in an absolutely unique position among humanity. That's what you're praying. May you be held in the highest of regard. May you be seen as special and unique and worthy of the highest regard because we need to pray that way. That's the need of our heart and our soul. We need a God who is good and great and wholly different than, than the way we are. And when this is grasped on a daily basis, guess what? It reorients the compass of our life. It points us in the right direction with the right attitude so that we can cultivate the right way to bring heaven to earth and God's will into every situation. I love what Dallas Ward puts it. He says it this way. The cosmic significance of these words must not hide the fact that it is a natural request of a child who loves its Abba, its daddy. How a child's heart is wounded to hear its parents, mother or father, dishonored or to see them attacked. That's what underlies this. It's kind of like when someone says, hey, don't you, don't you mess with my mother. You know, what are you talking about? That kind of, you know, little kids. He goes on, he says, such an attack shakes the foundation of the child's existence for the parents are its world. The touching confidence in the parent that famously makes a child think its parents are the best in every regard is really essential to the child's well-being in the early stages of life. It's really important for a little child to think their parents are the greatest and the best. It brings a security to their heart and soul. It creates a relationship of deep respect to not want to do wrong against your father. So as this prayer begins with its praise and placement of God as our Father filling the heavens, we're, we're tapping into a prayer of an adoring child, somewhat jealous for its parents' honor. And Jesus says in essence to them, here's how to pray. It is this foundational stuff that will change the way you look at it. It's new from all the stuff you're hearing taught by the rabbis. Approach God as your father, Abba, your dad in heaven, who in this case actually is the greatest and should be recognized that way by all. So take time. Pray this prayer. Meditate on this. Let your your heart feel the depths of this. Perhaps be moved so much to weep for sadness that God, our heavenly father, is not understood in this way. Enter into the alarm of a little child who stumbles across those who do not think its father or mother is the greatest and the best and allow this to penetrate your heart. Think about the lack of admiration and confidence the human world has for our Father in heaven. Pray that you might, as his child, live in this world in such a way that, as Jesus said, people may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, I'm praying that as we study this, that God will mess with our hearts. That we will be different, not because of some words, but because we begin to take the reality of the truth of this, which is maybe new in some cases. 
And then it will impact as, a, as like a compass to your life. It will reorientate you if you pray in the morning or you pray at a certain time. And you pray not by rope, but begin to understand these incredible, essential, elemental truths that our Father who fills the heavens is worthy of honor. So that the Lord's prayer is prayed not merely rote and in some memorized fashion, but with a deep understanding of freshness that gives perspective to who God is and who you are and what you should be about. And it reminds you on a daily basis what you need and that only God can provide it. You live in an utter dependency. And it challenges you daily to go, are my accounts clean? Are things right with people? God's forgiven me. Am I right with you, God? Have I done something? Do I need to get things straight? And do I need to get things straight with others? And it reminds us that we live with this Father who often will set up protective boundaries for our sake so that we will say, God, we understand there is a real there is a reality of evil in this world. There's a temptation that could destroy my soul. So God, would you put this around me and keep me from it? And then as you call to remembrance, the very last part, you remember whose kingdom this is. And who has the power to do this? And who should receive the glory for all this? Um, Dallas Ward write some wonderful stuff on us, and I'm not going to go through all this. He just talks about how he lived this prayer out. If you want to hear that part, you have to hear the first service, because I'm not going to... I just want to tell you, one of the most powerful things you can do is to take this as a pattern of prayer and begin to pray it in your life with freshness. And as we move into communion today, I'm going to actually use one of his prayers, which he paraphrased of the Lord's Prayer, that you might hear it in a fresh way and that your heart might be prepared. And, and if you have received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and, and acknowledge your need of him and, and recognize your sin and you've opened your life to him, I invite you to be a part of this meal. Because what communion is, is you're saying, I'm right with you, God. So I'm going to ask the uh, servers of communion if they would come forward at this time. Those who serve communion, if you come forward, and then the rest of the congregation, would you please stand? And I'm going to pray this prayer over you. As Dallas Lord rewords it, I like it. Let's pray. Dear Father, always near us, may your name be treasured and loved. May your rule be completed in us. May your will be done here on earth in just the way it is done in heaven. Give us today the things we need today. And forgive us our sins and impositions on you as we go about forgiving all who in any way offend us. As your head is bowed before the Lord, I'm going to ask you to examine your heart. If you know that you're not living in a way that's right before the Lord, he doesn't come at you to shame you. He just says, open your heart. Um, Call out to me for mercy and grace. Confess it to me. And if you're not right with someone, don't make that a little deal. To experience the forgiveness fully of God, you also have to be like this fresh stream of forgiveness coming out of you. You may need boundaries of trust, but you still need to forgive. That's your work, to let go and to make things right as best you can, being at peace as best you can with someone. So if that's the case, as you take communion... Wrestle through this part of the prayer. 
And he continues, please don't put us through trials, but deliver us from everything bad. Because you're the one in charge. You have all the power. And the glory, too, is all yours forever. Which is just the way we want it. And then Dallas says this. You guys can look. He writes, just the way we want it is not a bad paraphrase for amen. What is needed at the end of this great prayer is a ringing affirmation of the goodness of God and God's world. And if your nerves can take it, you might occasionally try at the end, whoopee. (laughs) I imagine God himself will not mind. As we take communion, we say, whoopee. As God our Father provided his Son and loves us. You may be seated. Let's take communion.